This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, welcome to another episode of the ATS Reading List Podcast, brought to you by the American Thoracic Society's Section on Medical Education, the Training Committee, and Trainees Interested in Medical Education. I'm Jen Duke, and I'm joined by my co-host, PJ Gary. Hello, everyone. In this episode, we have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Kendall. Dr. Kundal is an assistant professor in the Division of Pulmonary, Critical Care, and Sleep Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. She completed her internal medicine residency at Emory University in Atlanta, followed by pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine fellowship training at Mount Sinai. She also completed a master's degree in clinical science and research at Mount Sinai in January 2022 and is the Associate Program Director of the Sleep Medicine Fellowship. She has received several early career training awards, including the ATS Aspire Fellowship Award and the American Academy of Sleep Medicine Physician Scientist Training Award. Recently, she is the recipient of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine Bridge Award for Early Career Investigators, as well as an NIH K-23 Career Development Grant. Her research focuses on investigating the links between sleep apnea, sleep duration, and cardiovascular diseases using multimodality imaging techniques. We are excited to get her view on these articles and to help you make a dent in your reading list. So let's get into it. Dr. Kundal, thank you for joining us today. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We are so excited to chat with you about these two articles today, but First, must I say that this first paper really speaks to my heart. Any researcher who calls their trial the catnap trial is a true kindred spirit. And for our listeners out there, catnap stands for CPAP Apnea Trial North American Program Randomized Clinical Trial. But the name is just fantastic. We can all agree on that. Cats are great, but let's actually talk about the paper. Sure. So this first paper was published in 2012. Just to set the scene, in 2012, CPAP was known to improve daytime sleepiness, reduce cardiovascular risk, improve insulin sensitivity, increase neurobehavioral performance, and enhance quality of life. But all of this was known from studies done in patients with severe OSA, which we define as greater than 30 respiratory events an hour. The trials for people with mild OSA, which we define as between 5 and 15 episodes an hour, had conflicting results, particularly because of methodologic limitations. Now, the purpose of this double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled parallel group study was to determine the efficacy of CPAP treatment for functional improvement in sleepy patients with mild and moderate OSA after eight weeks of treatment. This primary endpoint was measured using the functional outcomes of sleep questionnaire. I'm curious, Dr. Kendall, if you could speak a bit more to this primary endpoint. I wasn't as familiar with this when I read the paper. Sure. Um, So the Functional Outcomes of Sleep Questionnaire, or FOSC, is a gold standard instrument, and it's designed to assess the impact of sleepiness on the ability to conduct daily activities. So the score consists of 30 questions evaluating the patient's quality of life as it relates to symptoms of excessive sleepiness. It examines five domains of daily life, including activity levels, vigilance, intimacy, productivity, and social outcomes. The participant then rate the difficulty of performing a given activity on a four-point scale 
ranging from no difficulty to extreme difficulty. So this primary endpoint is a strength of the trial because not only does CPAP have a proven impact on self-reported sleepiness, but the improvement in FOSC scores adds to the evidence supporting that CPAP also improves quality of life-related outcomes. This issue is especially important when the emphasis in healthcare is shifting more towards patient-centered outcomes, which are now considered a key component in the evaluation of the utility of an intervention. Thanks for walking us through that, Dr. Kundal. I think all that is really important groundwork. And for our listeners, we've included a link to the original paper from 1999, which outlines those 30 questions included in the FOSC. We'll attach them in the show notes for those interested. But Dr. Kundal, do you have any comments on the use of this parallel groups methodology that was used in the study? It's an interesting design. Essentially, 50% of patients were assigned to sham and the others to treatment. They all completed their FOSS questionnaires weekly at home. At eight weeks, their assignments were then revealed, and patients who had been on treatment were dismissed. Those who were assigned sham then went on to treatment. Do you think this awareness of treatment led to potential bias, or is this just something we inevitably have to deal with when trying to study a treatment modality such as CPAP? So I think the parallel groups methodology is actually a major strength to study. The use of sham CPAP for placebo intervention allowed for a true comparison of efficacy with active therapeutic CPAP, especially related to the subjective assessments. There is, however, a potential bias that, you know, the bed partner may have observed the presence of snoring or excessive sleepiness in the placebo group, therefore unblinding the participant. But this bias may depend on how the participant perceives and incorporates this observation from their bed partner into their response for the outcome measures. And then moreover, the protocol included an education session highlighting that even those on active treatment may experience symptoms, which may mitigate this risk for the bias that you mentioned. And in regard to your second question, although the study assignments were revealed at eight weeks, they were initially blinded and randomized to the intervention. So for the initial protocol, the study assignments were revealed only after the study personnel collected subjective data on sleep-related outcomes. So I don't think this would contribute to any bias. However, the group initially assigned to sham CPAP that eventually crossed over to active CPAP was now aware of the treatment. And yes, this may have led to some bias in the final responses to outcome measures. But the fact that sleepy OSA patients had greater functional improvement after eight weeks of CPAP therapy compared to the sham CPAP is reassuring in this trial. Interesting design for sure. I'm curious, while this was included as a secondary outcome, the authors noted that the study was underpowered to detect changes in blood pressure. Do you have any brief comments on how treatment of CPAP potentially impacts blood pressure knowing what we know now in 2022? So while this particular study was underpowered to detect changes in blood pressure, and also data on the effect of CPAP on cardiovascular outcomes and sleep apnea has been neutral in recent trials, some of the strongest evidence in our field lies in the effect of CPAP on reducing blood pressure in patients with OSA. So multiple observational studies, randomized trials, and meta-analyses confirm that CPAP has a beneficial effect on blood pressure in patients with sleep apnea and hypertension. 
While CPAP has been shown to reduce systolic blood pressure by 2 to 3 millimeters mercury in those with hypertension, the effect of CPAP on those with resistant and refractory hypertension is really the greatest, reducing blood pressure by anywhere from 5 to 9 millimeters mercury. As we all know, hypertension is an extremely important intermediary outcome for the development of cardiovascular disease. So screening for OSA is something we should definitely keep in mind as we evaluate patients with hypertension in our clinical practice. Awesome. There was a, a really nice session this past ATS, actually, on the benefits of sleep apnea treatment on hypertension. So bringing it all home, based on the primary analysis, it appears that CPAP improved FOS scores after eight weeks. I also really liked how they specifically investigated the difference in FOS scores for those patients who utilized CPAP for an average of greater than four hours per day. The authors commented that the less than optimal nightly duration of CPAP use likely increases the generalizability of this study because this may more accurately reflect real-world use, but they also mentioned that this may have contributed to an increase in measured residual sleepiness. How do we reconcile this, Dr. Kundal? Yeah, so this is unfortunately a limitation of several randomized trials looking at the effect of CPAP on various outcomes. This trial, the mean duration of CPAP was four hours a day in the active CPAP group and about three hours a day in the sham CPAP group. The majority of randomized trials to date have reported a mean CPAP use of less than four to five hours per night in the sleep apnea literature. But I think the ability to accurately evaluate adherence to treatment in each arm is a major strength of trials in sleep apnea and CPAP because this may be a little bit more difficult to conduct in other intervention studies involving medications, for example. The authors are correct that while suboptimal CPAP use is a limitation of studies like this, it lends to an increased ability to generalize the results of this study to our patient populations. Because we know that CPAP adherence in our patients is often similar to that seen in this study. There's always a trade-off between internal and external validity or generalizability in research methodology. So I think it's important to interpret the results of any study with a good understanding of the existing limitations in methodology and study design. So again, to kind of bring it home, even though the use of CPAP was limited, it does match real-world data and therefore makes it generalizable. Perfect. So a little bit more in kind of this vein of generalizability. So this was 2012, and we now had a large RCT with solid methodology that showed that treatment with CPAP improved functional outcomes and upward sleepiness scale in patients with mild OSA and daytime sleepiness. Now, the crossover analysis showed marked improvements in FOSS scores after patients who had previously received SHAM were given eight weeks of treatment CPAP. How do you think we can bring this back to our daily practice? And how should we be keeping this study in mind when we meet new OSA patients and discuss treatment options? Sure. So let me start with maybe a minor concern for this study. So I think one concern in this study may be the magnitude of the improvement in the FOSS scores. So the same authors previously reported that an improvement of at least two points on the total FOSS score in a change of at least one in the individual items is considered clinically meaningful based on the previously reported test-retest reliability. But in the current study, absolute changes in FOSS score were lower than this. 
However, the mean changes seem to be clinically important. And also when you take this together with the improvements in the secondary outcomes and other health-related quality of life measures, such as the SF36, this trial definitely supports the use of CPAP in sleepy patients with milder OSA. So to answer your question, I think the results of this study provide a strong rationale to tell our patients that if they have mild or moderate sleep apnea, along with symptoms of excessive daytime sleepiness, consistent use of CPAP has been shown to improve sleepiness and sleep-related quality of life outcomes. The bigger question I think really in our field is the need to better define sleepy versus non-sleepy OSA phenotypes and determine if those with milder OSA without daytime sleepiness would report similar benefits after sleep apnea treatment. Love it. Okay, Dr. Kundal, final thoughts, comments on the catnap trial before we move on? Sure. So in closing comments, I just want to point out that recent studies have shown increasing prevalence of sleep apnea using the updated and more sensitive um, diagnostic criteria for sleep apnea by the ASM that was published in 2012. So the estimated global prevalence of sleep apnea based on this updated criteria stands at 1 billion according to a recent study published in The Lancet. And it's upwards of 25 to 50% when accounting for moderate to severe OSA in certain countries. So this is why this trial is really key and the results are important because they suggest a significant value in treating sleepy patients with even mild to moderate disease, which is highly prevalent both nationally and globally. Excellent. Great discussion on the first article. We'll include the 2012 diagnostic criteria in the show notes. Now, I want to transition a bit to our next article, which was published in New England Journal of Medicine in 2016, the SAVE trial. Now, not as great of a name as CATNAP, but I digress. So this was an international multi-center randomized parallel group trial. This trial looked at obstructive sleep apnea and cardiovascular disease and was designed to evaluate the effectiveness of CPAP in reducing the rate of cardiovascular events among patients specifically with moderate to severe OSA as compared with the quote, usual care or no CPAP. All patients were also given advice on healthy sleep habits and lifestyle changes to minimize OSA. Before we go too deep into this trial, I just wanna add one thing that stood out to me with both of these trials, and that was the duration of time spent on CPAP by the participants. In the SAVE trial, participants were required to have a minimum level of adherence of three hours per night. This seems like such a short time, and we kind of discussed this previously, Dr. Kundal, but any comments on this before we move on to go more in depth in the SAVE trial? Yeah, absolutely. So like I mentioned, this kind of comes up in a lot of the sleep apnea trials. So this adherence criteria of three hours per night, specifically in this trial, likely seems limited and suboptimal, and it probably is to some degree. However, the accepted definition of CPAP adherence across the field, partly owing to the Medicare definition of CPAP adherence, is the use of CPAP for at least four hours per night for 70% of the nights. This is the definition of adherence used by multiple trials to date, partially because this level of adherence, as I mentioned earlier, reflects real-world numbers of CPAP adherence in clinical practice, and it allows for the study results to be more generalizable, and it allows for us to conduct the study and to make it feasible. 
So the authors of the study admit that although the mean adherence of CPAP was 3.3 hours and actually exceeded the estimates in their power calculations when designing the study, this level of adherence may be insufficient to have an effect on the cardiovascular outcomes. Something that we probably just have to work with. <laughs> yeah, really good point. This study utilizes the four different patient reported outcomes, um, notably not including the FOS, which was used in the CATNAP trial, but possibly these measures will be more familiar to our listeners, like the hospital anxiety and depression scale and the Epworth sleepiness scale. Dr. Kendall, any comments about these particular questionnaires? Do you feel like there are any domains of symptomatology that weren't captured in these measures of patient reported outcomes? So I think all of this trial didn't use the FOSS questionnaire. They did use the 36-item short-form health survey, or SF36, which does capture various measures of health-related quality of life outcomes, including physical functioning, bodily pain, general health, vitality scores, social and emotional function, et cetera. The SF36 was also used in the CATNAP trial as a secondary outcome. And moreover, this trial also used the EQ5D, or the European Quality of Life five-dimension questionnaire, in addition to the HADS or Hospital Anxiety and Depression Scale and Upward Sleepiness Score. So I think using the conglomerate of these questionnaires, the study did a really great job of capturing several domains of symptomatology and health-related quality of life outcomes for patients in each intervention arm. Lots of abbreviations for these scores and each of these studies, but these scales are important to review and to keep in mind when we're talking about these various studies, because the reality is they're what we have in order to assess these patient-centered outcomes. Can you elaborate a little bit on the study population that was included in the SAFE trial as compared to other similar randomized trials? Sure. So the SAFE trial randomized patients specifically with moderate to severe OSA to CPAP or usual care for secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease meaning that the patients already had a history of existing cardiovascular disease, such as coronary artery disease or stroke. Additionally, those with severe daytime sleepiness, defined as an upward score of greater than 15, were excluded. So this is in comparison to three other similar randomized trials that investigated the CPAP on cardiovascular events and sleep apnea that were conducted prior to the study. Two of these trials recruited non-sleepy patients with OSA defined as an upward score of less than 10 and evaluated the effect of CPAP for primary cardiovascular disease prevention in patients without existing cardiovascular disease. So specifically for this trial, they recruited moderate to severe OSA, not excessively sleepy patients, and patients with existing cardiovascular disease. Yeah, a very specific but important patient population to consider. Now, the primary endpoint in the SAVE trial was a composite outcome of death from any cardiovascular cause, myocardial infarction, stroke, or hospitalization for heart failure, acute coronary syndrome, which included unstable angina, or transient ischemic attack. The mean duration of follow-up was 3.7 years, but these all seem like obvious and important outcomes that can easily be confounded. And this study came at a time when there was recent data suggesting that increasing apnea hypopnea events was correlated with an increase in cardiovascular events. 
I feel like some of these cardiovascular diseases may ultimately manifest in a secondary fashion after a longer period of follow-up and may be underrepresented in the study, but please put me in my place here, Dr. Kundal. Sure. So I think the issue of confounding specifically for this study is somewhat negligible here because this was a randomized controlled trial. And so the simple act of randomization helps prevent biases that can come up to confounding factors, which are often an issue with observational studies that had been done in the past. But you're right about the mean follow-up period of this study, which was 3.7 years. And this definitely may not be long enough to evaluate some of these cardiovascular disease outcomes, which can often take several years to manifest, as you mentioned. And this is one of the limitations of this study. As a side note, another important point I do want to bring up is that while there was no difference in the primary composite cardiovascular event outcomes between the two intervention groups, which is similar to the results of the three trials I pointed out earlier. The authors conducted a propensity-matched per-protocol analysis. And when the authors analyzed only those patients who used their CPAP for greater than four hours per night compared to the propensity-matched control group and further stratified by individual cardiovascular event types, such as stroke or myocardial infarction, they found that CPAP use did in fact have a significant benefit, but specifically only on cerebrovascular outcomes, including stroke and TIA, but not on cardiac outcomes such as MI. So although we definitely need to interpret this data with caution, this sub-analysis may potentially suggest that maybe we should focus more on individual cardiovascular outcomes rather than composite cardiovascular outcomes because OSA may have a differential effect on each of these outcomes individually. So that's an interesting point about individual outcomes versus composite outcomes. So I think those are excellent points about focusing on individual cardiovascular outcomes rather than composite outcomes. I'm interested in your take on generalizability from the study, specifically given that it was a largely male population, about 80%, that was mostly non-Black, non-Hispanic, non-Latinx. The study sites also seem to have been mostly outside of North America. Any pearls about generalizability here, Dr. Kendall? Very important question, Jen. Thanks for asking. So yes, generalizability here can definitely be an issue. Majority of the study population for this study was Asian and white, but we do know that obstructive sleep apnea can often disproportionately affect the Black, Hispanic, and Latinx communities. Too often, these communities are significantly underrepresented, not only at sleep testing sites, but also in randomized trials, such as this one, to evaluate the efficacy of CPAP use in, cardio in reducing cardiovascular outcomes. So I think both as a field and as a community, we definitely need to develop more robust methods to proportionately include communities of color and underrepresented minorities in future trials so we can really generalize these results to our clinical patient populations. In the same vein of generalizability, I also wanna point out again that the study recruited only those with existing cardiovascular disease and excluded those with excessive daytime sleepiness so we cannot necessarily generalize these results to those with excessive sleepiness and sleep apnea. Important, very important as we move forward in designing trials for these populations. 
This study also showed that the risk of serious cardiovascular events was ultimately not lower among patients who received treatment with CPAP in addition to usual care as compared to those who received usual care alone. As a practicing clinician treating sleep patients, how has this particular trial impacted your approach to the care of patients with moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea? How do we reconcile the usual care with the very close follow-up these study patients had once they were enrolled in the trial? So I think this was a well-designed and important study demonstrating that in those with existing cardiovascular disease and limited daytime symptoms for sleep apnea, use of CPAP may not prevent composite cardiovascular events. However, as I mentioned before, these results are not generalizable to all patients. And then moreover, I wanna point out that all of these randomized trials, including this one, use the apnea hypopnea index as a metric to define moderate to severe sleep apnea, which is what we use in the clinical setting. So as our field advances, we're questioning more and more whether the AHI or apnea hypopnea index alone is enough as a single metric to risk stratify patients with sleep apnea. Should we be using other metrics to risk stratify these patients for future trials? Metrics such as hypoxic burden or event duration. So I think for now, we need to take each patient on a case-by-case basis. If the patient has any severity of sleep apnea and they report significant daytime sleepiness symptoms that affect their quality of life and daily activities, they should be offered a trial of treatment for sleep apnea. If they have severe sleep apnea without significant symptoms, their degree of hypoxemia and comorbidities such as a such as the presence of resistant hypertension or refractory hypertension can kind of help guide the decision for treatment and should be taken into account. Awesome. Thank you. I'm definitely taking that back to sleep clinic. I will also add that this study did show statistically significant improvements in a few other outcomes, which were measured by various questionnaires, as well as a reduction in days off from work. Despite these not being the primary outcome measures, they do seem like meaningful outcomes to keep in mind. Okay, now we're really curious, and you know this question is coming because we ask it every episode. If you had to give an impact factor to these publications on how much they have impacted everyday practice for sleep apnea patients, what would you give them? Great question, Jen. So I think both the trials that we discussed today have significantly impacted everyday clinical practice for patients with sleep apnea and have a strong potential to impact future research. So the CATNAP trial showed that even those with mild sleep apnea will benefit from treatment with CPAP with improvements in health-related quality of life outcomes related to excessive sleepiness. The results of this SAVE trial definitely keeps us on our toes. So while I cannot definitively say that those with non-sleepy, moderate to severe sleep apnea will benefit from treatment from a cardiovascular disease standpoint, I think we still have a long ways to go to in accepting this as dogma. So I think future studies focusing on individuals with sleepy versus non-sleepy OSA phenotypes with a higher representation of underrepresented minorities 
And using novel metrics to risk stratify sleep apnea patients for CPAP may give us more answers. So still some work to do, but it seems, Dr. Kundal, that you're working on many of these very things. And I look forward to seeing where the new and upcoming literature go in this regard. This episode was a lot of fun, and it's a lot to think about given the unique challenges of randomized controlled trials and obstructive sleep apnea patients. The methodologies and various considerations for this population is a lot to consider. I agree. Thank you, Dr. Kendall, for joining us on this episode. Thank you, PJ and Jen. Really enjoyed discussing these important articles with you guys. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. This episode of the ATS Reading List podcast was, as always, brought to you by the American Thoracic Society Section on Medical Education, the Training Committee, and Trainees Interested in Medical Education. If you enjoyed the content, please like, rate, review, or subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.